We are almost halfway through the book of Romans now, uh, up to chapter 7. And in, uh, in this passage of 7, 1 to 6, um, in fact the rest of chapter 7 as well, uh, Paul is continuing his argument from chapter 6, uh, responding to uh, some real or hypothetical objections that people may have to him and what he's saying about being saved by grace, not by works. Uh, we saw in uh, these two objections that he responded to, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Verses 1 and 2 and then in verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Uh, that, the phrase that Paul uses there that's translated by no means is the, uh, a phrase, it's the strongest objection you could give. It's like, God forbid, uh, how could you ever think that that is the case? Uh, he's very strong in saying these, uh, these are not the case. Uh, he, his, his answer to the first is no, we cannot continue in sin because we've died and we've been raised with Christ and so we are dead to sin and alive to God. His answer to the second is no, we should not feel free to sin just because we're under grace because our allegiance has changed. So now we are slaves of God. We are no longer slaves of sin. And in our passage this morning, uh, in a sense he combines these two answers in the example that he gives of a marriage or the ending of a marriage, which we'll get to in a moment. But first, uh, to help us see the continuity of his argument, notice that Paul twice mentions uh, in this passage, the idea of bearing fruit uh, in verses 4 and 5. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. This links back to 6.21.22 where he said, What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and in its end eternal life. The crucial test of anything is its fruit. The other day my neighbour over the back fence let me know that he'd uh, pulled out his passion fruit vine uh, which I was quite happy about because it was growing up his fence, the fence between our two properties and it would grow over the fence and entangle itself with my plants and constantly cutting it back and then it started sending up suckers into my lawn, uh, which I think that's probably still going to happen 
Um, so I was glad about that. A, a year ago, he'd said to me, feel free to pick any of the passion fruit that grow on your side of the fence. You, you, you can have them yourself. Uh, the only problem was that with this passion fruit vine, the root stock had taken over and it was just this wild vine. Uh, I think it was still some kind of passion fruit related plant, uh, but all it did was send out these, these long strands and they produced beautiful flowers but no fruit. Uh, all it did was cause havoc in his garden and in my garden. So the passion fruit vine bore bad fruit and so it had to be torn out and thrown away. Jesus used a similar illustration when he said, "You are, I, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bear, bears much fruit. And he says, any of the branches that don't bear fruit are cut off and thrown into the fire. He went on and said, you did not choose me but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So a genuine disciple of Jesus will bear fruit and that fruit, that good fruit will be evidence that their faith is living and not dead. I think everyone ultimately wants to bear fruit. We want to be a fruitful person. We want to be someone whose life counts, who has a sense of significance, a sense of, uh, or a knowledge that we've made a contribution to our community, to our world. Um, and this is affirmed in our culture, where often the very first question you ask someone when you've met them socially is, what do you do? Is your life fruitful? What are you producing? What are you contributing to the world and to society? Sometimes their answer can shape our perception of their worth, can't it? Depending on what, what they do. Is it something with prestige and value in the world's eyes or is it something of low value? Someone who isn't being productive or who doesn't have long-term career plans can often be seen as less valuable than the high achievers. Even if the high achiever is just serving themselves in their ambition, we tend to value someone who is fruitful, someone who is producing results in what they do and we, we want to be like that. We want to be that person who bears fruit. Now our motives in wanting to be fruitful may differ. We may be will believe that we have been entirely altruistic, entirely selfless in what we do. But I, I suspect that more often our motive is that we want to be recognised, we want to be noticed by people or by God. We want to hear the words, well done, to feel that at least someone thinks we're significant or valued because of what we've done. And so, so much that actually passes as altruism or selflessness, I think is really a veiled selfishness. It's really just our, ego, our egos wanting to be, to be recognised. Now, this desire 
to be fruitful, to be productive in itself is good. Nothing wrong with it. Because as we've seen, we are created to bear fruit. Verse 4, we are created to bear fruit for God. God wants us to be fruitful people. But what does this mean? What does it mean to bear fruit for God and not for ourselves? Well, ultimately it means that all we do is to the glory of God. To lead ourselves and to lead others to praise God for his goodness. To worship him for all the good gifts he gives us that enable us to do anything in the first place. To bear fruit for God is to love God and to love our neighbour. And in that we find a legitimate significance, even if we're not noticed. I am To say I'm a person who loves God and who loves a neighbour, then I'm being true to how I'm created. And that is immensely significant. However, as sinners, we still bear fruit, all right, but it's not the kind of fruit for which we were created. And Paul calls that, in verse 5, fruit for death. Rather than living to love God and our neighbour, we instead live to love ourselves. And so we find that the ultimate outworking of our lives leads to death. If you're living for yourself, That's the only thing it's going to end in, death. We see that worked out in in three ways. Firstly, because no matter how hard we work and how well we work and how productive we are in this world, we'll never be able to avoid the finality of our death. And once we're dead, we can take none of it with us. There's no guarantee that anything we've worked for in this world will even continue once we're dead. There's no guarantee that anyone will even remember us. The writer of Ecclesiastes took a very honest look at his life and said, if, if all there is in this world is this world, if all there is in this life is this life, He said, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be the master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. In 2006, a woman by the name of Joyce Vincent was discovered dead in her London apartment. She'd been dead for two years and no one had noticed. Neither her family or her friends or her co-workers or her neighbours even. They just thought the smell was the bad plumbing. What What a sad tragedy. But there has been a movie made about Joyce Vincent. She has a Wikipedia page. There was even a musical album 
that someone wrote inspired by Joyce Vincent. People have become fascinated by this woman who died alone, unnoticed, unremembered because it epitomises the fear of so many people that they might die lonely and forgotten and live an unfruitful life. So death comes at the end of our lives as a thief and just robs us of everything that we uh, are trying to achieve. So firstly, we bear fruit for death because we're going to die. Secondly, so much of what we do achieve, even with the best of motives, is often turned and used instead for evil and destruction. For example, the same nuclear technology that is used to fight cancer is also used to build nuclear weapons to kill and destroy. The internet is used to bring so many people together. I'm meeting so many people these days who met through the internet and many other good things come out of the internet yet the internet is also used for sexual immorality to facilitate terrorism and crime and to uh, cause people to be shut off from others. There seems to be this unavoidable principle at work in this world that uh, anything that is good also has its evil destructive counterpart. No matter how much good we strive to do, no matter how much we try to bear fruit for life, there will always be an equal or even greater evil that bears fruit for death that cancels it out. Paul describes that in Romans chapter 8 as the creation being subjected to frustration or futility. And thirdly, because in our striving to be independent from God and our desire just to glorify ourselves and not God, we face the ultimate but fair penalty, which is death, being cut off forever from the blessing and favour of God. So that all we know, and this, is, this is hell, this is what true hell is, knowing the futility and the emptiness of a life that is entirely self-centred. Even our good works, if done in our own strength, are an expression of rebellion against God and will only end in death. And so the human being outside of this right relationship with God stands before God, before his law, which was designed to bring us life, but is now turned against us exposing our sinful and selfish desires, handing us over to slavery, condemning us to death. The law becomes a tyrant, dominating us, backing us into a corner from which there's no escape, as long as we think we can use the law to justify ourselves. And Paul says the only way to escape this oppression and bondage is death because only then will the righteous demands of the law be satisfied. So we see in verse 1 of chapter 7 that the sinner stands in this, uh, this, under this oppressive, 
domination of the law. The law is binding. The word that Paul uses there that's translated binding is literally lordship. The same word that's used by Christians when we say Jesus is Lord and by the Romans when they said Caesar is Lord. This is an absolute authority. It calls for complete obedience and submission. It's not just, the law is not just a suggestion. Uh, the law says this, this is it, this is the absolute. And so this law uh, is binding, the law is Lord over us. And we need to see that we stand before the law as people who have given our hearts and obedience to another, as we saw last week. We're not victims. We've willingly sold ourselves as slaves to sin and this sin now controls our every desire and decision such that we not only have no desire to obey the law but even if we did we'd be unable to obey it. So even our feeble efforts at self-justification turn every time into a surrender to sin which only then drags us deeper into the law's condemnation. There's no escaping this lordship of the law that tells us we're sinners. The only way to escape this lordship of the law is by dying. And that's where Paul gets to his illustration of a marriage or the end of a marriage. Let me read it again. A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now we may hear that illustration and think, hang on, Paul. Logically, it this illustration doesn't quite match what you're saying. Uh, You've told us that uh, we need to die in order to be set free from this bondage to the law. But then you use the example of a woman who was freed from the law regarding marriage by the death of another person, by the death of her husband. So... The logic may not quite sit right with us. But our failure to understand the logic of this example is simply because of our our individualistic thinking as modern people. Biblically, a wife and a husband are one, one flesh. And what that means is that if in a marriage a partner dies, then the other partner, in a sense, dies too. The outworking of this psychologically is grief. People may even say something like, I feel like a part of me has died. But it's not just a psychological phenomenon or or feeling. In this picture, 
that Paul's painting. When the husband dies, the wife also dies. In that her bond to her husband has been severed permanently. She is dead to him as much as he is dead to her. And Paul is using this illustration of uh, the death of a spouse because he wants to bring across two equally powerful truths. Firstly, that our bondage to the law in its enslaving, condemning power is as binding as the law of marriage in which the the two parties are essentially one flesh. And Jesus said, what God has joined together, let no one separate. If you you separate a marriage, uh, the people themselves are torn apart. The law is is unbreakable in its bonds, as unbreakable as God himself, since the law is an expression of his own character. And so as long as we are living in the state of sin, the law's power over us, its condemnation is inescapable. It's as binding as the law of marriage. Secondly, there's only one action that is able once and for all to break us out from under this dominion and that is death. It might sound strange but the liberation that death brings from slavery is as powerful and permanent and ultimate as the power of the law itself. The woman whose husband dies is no longer a wife. Legally, it's as if her husband never existed because she can now, if she chooses to, go and marry another man. Now, it doesn't come through strongly in the English, but Paul is using extreme language here when he talks about dying to the law. When he says in verse 4, you have died, um, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. He's not, just, he's not using a word that implies, well, you've passed away you got old and frail or you uh, were sick and you perished. The word means you have been slain, you have been put to death, you've been slaughtered, you've been killed. And then he uses the phrase through the body of Christ. He uses that phrase to refer to Jesus' death because the word meaning physical body, Jesus' body, emphasises that Jesus, when he was taken from the cross and put in the tomb, was a dead corpse. He didn't just appear to be dead. It wasn't a 99.99% death. Jesus came under the full and complete demand of the law that says the soul who sins shall surely die. And so he bled and he died, the perfect one in the place of sinners. And this is what Paul was getting at earlier when he said in 6 verse 5, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
It's not merely the fact that we are united with Jesus in his death, but it is a death like his, a death that was complete and final, ending in a sealed tomb. Our death in him is not merely the consequences or outworking of sin. In him we were slain, stone cold, dead, and we were entombed with him. But that's where our liberation lies. If we were to go through that death on our own, it would be a one-way journey. If we were simply ourselves to come and face God and his law and pay what the law demands on our own, that would be the end. We would remain in death. Because we are unable to any stretch of the imagination to pay for our sin by our own merit. So our death would be as eternal and as infinite as the one against whom we've sinned. Our dying, in a sense, would never be complete. We'd remain forever wallowing in the despair of our own unrepentant, rebellious, uh, futile, fruitless hearts. If, however, we go through this death in Christ, united with him, where his merits become our merits, as our sin becomes his sin, then his complete death becomes ours as well. But then also his resurrection becomes our resurrection as well. What does this mean for those who have put their faith in Christ? How do we now relate to the law? Now Paul has already made it clear that the law isn't done away with. He said earlier in Romans Are we abolishing the law? He says, by no means. In fact, we are upholding the law. It doesn't mean that uh, we we tear those parts out of our Bibles, the Old Testaments, and especially the first bits that include the law, or just leave them unread. It doesn't take away our responsibility to, to know the law and to seek to obey. However, the law is now ruled out as a means of justification. It's not that the law is done away with, it's that our relationship to the law has now changed. That's what we were like under sin. The law was over us, we were under law. It was an oppressive, heavy burden that weighed us down. And try as we may, we couldn't stand up straight and walk in righteousness and goodness. No longer does the law hang over our heads, demanding obedience but never producing it, making life a drudgery and a burden and filling our consciences with shame and guilt, making us unable to truly love God and our neighbour. The one who has been set free by Christ, for them the law hasn't gone away, it's just moved in its relationship to us. Instead of being over us as a heavy burden, now it sits underneath us 
as a foundation on which we can stand and joyfully obey in the freedom of grace. When Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. What were the words he was referring to? Well, he'd just finished the Sermon on the Mount, which is an exposition of the law. So now, because we are under grace and not under law, instead of being a master that dominates and enslaves us, the law becomes a servant that equips us to love the Lord our God with all our hearts and to love our neighbours. Far from being irrelevant, the commands of the law are once again the way of freedom. So, do not covet, which we'll look at in the next passage, do not covet is transformed from I must not covet or else the wrath of God will come upon me. It now becomes because I know the love of my Father and his grace to me, I'm free from wanting or desiring anything that he hasn't already given me as a free gift. So I'm free to love my neighbour and I'm free to see the good gifts that God has given them and not want them for myself. So I'm free to no longer covet. The command that says, do not murder, which when we're under law says, I must not kill because if I do I will face the just penalty for murder, which is death. It's now become, well that just penalty that I deserve has already been paid when Christ died for me. And I've died with him and I've risen with him, therefore I'm set free to see people as God sees them, made in his image, and so I can freely now desire good for my neighbour instead of wanting harm to them. I can, I can love my neighbour even if they're my enemy. And this is what Paul means when he talks about in verse 6 as the new way of the Spirit. Now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now what does Paul mean here by spirit? He could be meaning small s spirit, meaning that the, the heart, the, the essence, the spirit of the law, which is all about love, we could call that the functional aspect of the law, we're free to follow the spirit of the law now. Or you could mean big S spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit who himself dwells in us and enables us to joyfully obey the Father, the relational idea. Well, the answer is yes to both. The relational of the spirit himself dwelling in us and the functional of us uh, seeing the spirit, the essence of the law and living by are brought together because we no longer do works in order to earn to be in a right relationship. 
Rather, we do works that flow naturally from the relationship we have with the Father, achieved by Jesus and sealed by the Holy Spirit. This is a glorious freedom we have in Jesus Christ. To be set free from the law so that we can joyfully obey the law. Is this your experience? Are you joyfully serving God because of his grace and goodness to you? Or are you labouring still under the burden of the law? Is your confidence in yourself to be good enough to slip into heaven based on what you do? Or is your confidence in Jesus? Jesus who bore your sin and set you free from the penalty of the law and the drive to justify yourself. If, it's not your, if that is not your experience, the solution is simple. Repent and believe and receive his grace and receive the freedom that he offers all who come to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are under grace and not under law. Thank you that your grace is more powerful than uh, the bondage of sin and death. Your grace is more powerful than the, the enslaving lordship of the law that can only condemn us and bring guilt and shame. Father, thank you that your grace in Jesus Christ has come to us, has set us free now to joyfully obey your commands, Father, your Son said to us, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And Father, we say to you this morning, uh, we love you. You know that we love you. And our desire is to be people who walk in obedience, not because we think it will earn your merit or your favour, but because what what else could joyful love children do but obey their father and want to please him. That's our desire, Father, that our lives, our speech, our actions uh, will be pleasing to you so that in all that we do and say uh, you will receive the glory and that others may see us and through us see your goodness to them. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing uh, this song. It's a simple song. We've sung it here a couple of times before. Uh, We'll just sing it through once and then I uh, invite anyone uh, to lead us in prayer. Um, It may be a prayer in response to what we've heard God say to us this morning. Uh, It may be uh, a particular need you're aware of that we can pray for, for yourself or for others that we know. Um, So sing it through once, have a time of prayer and then we'll conclude by singing it again.
Let's sing again. Brothers and sisters, rejoice. Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.